This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly. And I'm Matt Dancona. And this is the two mats for the week ending Friday, the 16th of February, a podcast with a beautiful view, at least for this week. And that's because I am up in Scotland on my holidays and we're having a fantastic time in Aberdeen. Well, I am in southeast London looking at the beautiful sound townscape of the borough of Lewisham. <laughs> I, why would I need to move? Exactly. Is it good up there? Is it not? Is it lovely? It's fantastic. Oh, good. It's lovely. We've had, um, we've been in Ballater, where the King and Camilla have got a place, um, and all ah. the little local shops. All the local shops in the high street have got their by royal appointment crests. So there's oh, a, of course they a takeaway called the, called the New Shanghai Takeaway, and it's got this massive by royal appointment crest on it. So that's clearly where Charles gets his chow mein, which is good to know. And uh, and then we went up to Inverness. Inverness, what a fantastic town Inverness is. Loads oh, of great restaurants, years. pubs, beautiful river, uh, lovely islands you can go for a walk in. Thoroughly recommend it. And to get here, we took the magnificent um, Caledonian sleeper from Euston. Oh, really? All the way to oh, Aberdeen. Ah, it was wonderful. And we're going back down tonight, sadly. But we've had a terrific time. And we saw the most oh, amazing good. football game at, uh, at Petodri last night where Aberdeen... We're 3-0 down after 25 minutes to Motherwell. And then Neil Warnock, who is now the temporary manager of Aberdeen, made a few substitutions having messed up the initial starting formation and scored two goals in quick succession. And then after half-time, uh, scored an equaliser. So it ended 3-3, but it was an enthralling spectacle and a great advert for Scottish Premier League football. So well done, the Dons. So what did we talk about this week, Matt? Well, we talked about that inimitable duo, Keir Starmer and Bob Marley. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to how to link the two of them. Um, but uh, yeah. but uh, we talked. I suppose we talked primarily uh, about the, the difficulties that Labour has been having over anti-Semitism and candidate uh, selection and so on. Uh, so that was the main issue. And then in the second half, we came and talked about fantastic music biopics, didn't we? Because you've just yes, seen the exactly. Bob Marley Yes, exactly. Pegged film. to the Bob Marley movie. So, What should we call this issue? I mean, I think we've got to park Bob Marley in the title, probably, and focus on, on the crisis in Labour right now. Yes. Um, um, is crisis too strong a word? I think it, ha- Labour's Forever War? Labour's Forever War. That's quite... That, that, that's intriguing, and we'll induce some clicks i think which is the whole point isn't it to be totally cynical about it though though we disdain clickbait we love it that's our we, motto. we, we disdain it and depend on it 
We just <laughs> so okay exactly okay so this so, is uh, the two mats episode thirty three labors forever war enjoy enjoy. So, Matt, what are we talking about this week? Well, I think we have to talk about Labour's problems over anti-Semitism and the conflict in the Middle East. Obviously, we're recording this on Thursday, and so we don't know the results of the uh, Wellingborough and Kingswood by-elections. But I think that the Labour shambles this week is something that will outlast the the results, whatever they are. Uh, Maybe we could um, sort of kick off and get into the subject by playing a clip of Starmer in October 2020. I don't know if producer Matt could help us out with that. If you're anti-Semitic, you should be nowhere near this party. And we'll make sure you're not. And if, after all the pain, all the grief, and all the evidence in this report, there are still those who think there's no problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that it's all exaggerated, or a faction attack then frankly, you are part of the problem too. And you should be nowhere near the Labour Party either. So um, that's going back to October 2020 and it's Starmer's response to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report into Labour's handling of anti-Semitism under Jeremy Corbyn. And why is that relevant to this week? Well, because it's kind of the core backdrop to all the problems that, Labour has been having this week. So just to recap for listeners who maybe haven't been following it as obsessively as we have. um, Last Saturday night, the Mail on Sunday dropped and it revealed that Azza Ali, the Labour Party's candidate in Rochdale, uh, which is having a by-election thanks to the very sad death of Tony Lloyd, who died in January, had said, this is Ali, had said at a meeting shortly after the October the 7th Uh, massacres that the Israelis had connived in what turned out to be the worst day of slaughter for Jews since the Holocaust and his words were they deliberately took the security off this is the Israelis they allowed that massacre that gives them the green light to do whatever they bloody want they in that case being Hamas now this is obviously a bonkers conspiracy theory but it's also without a shadow of a doubt and under any definition anti-semitic why because it uses the classic example of the ancient trope that jews invite or conspire in their own persecution and this is a slam dunk case of anti-semitism there's there's no need to get into the sort of nuance and detail it, re- it really is um and it, in that context it's worth sort of just putting into the con- conversation at this point that this week the community security trust which monitors anti-Semitism, has reported a 589% increase in the number of incidents of anti-Semitism compared with 2022, two-thirds of which in 2023 occurred after the October the 7th. So this isn't just an abstract question or a matter of semantics or politics or faction. This is, you know, this is, this is, this has real world consequences. Clearly, it seems to me, Starmer should have withdrawn support from Ali there and then. But instead, he waited in until Monday evening when the Mail, the Daily Mail, revealed more. The Mail revealed that Ali had defended the Labour MP Andy MacDonald, who's the MP for Middlesbrough, who was suspended in October after he used the controversial phrase between the river and the sea to rally that refers to the area between the river jordan and the mediterranean and of that ali complained and then said at a meeting the same meeting it seems i'm quoting the media and some of the people in the media from certain jewish quarters were giving crap about what he mcdonald said again that's explicitly anti-semitic the standard definition of the of anti-Semitism for people who are interested is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance 
definition, which Labour has incorporated in full. Corbyn didn't want to incorporate it in full, but it did in 2018. And the second example it gives is an example of anti-Semitism is the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy or of Jews controlling the media, economy, government or other societal institutions. So again, Ali was clearly anti-Semitic. So there was a second um, Labour candidate who has been suspended, Graham Jones, on Wednesday. Um, but I think it's worth, uh, I don't know what you think, Matt, but I think that, that there, there, there are two questions. First of all is, you know, what, what, what is and what isn't anti-Semitic in this context? And I think off the bat, it's really, really, really important to say not every criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. You know, it really isn't. Uh, it's yeah. emphatically yeah. not it's really not anti-Semitic to say that Benjamin Netanyahu is a terrible prime minister. Yeah. It's not. It's not anti-Semitic to say that Israel's response to October the seventh has been excessive. It's not anti-Semitic yeah. to support no, 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 the SNP's motion coming up next week calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But the yeah. things that Ali said were. <laughs> were and that's the problem well, that, that, yes and that is that is clear what, what, where I'm not clear is where the things Graham Jones said where he said quote fuck Israel um, now that that is open to interpretation does he what does he mean by that does he mean the state of these people what they're doing is terrible or does it mean fuck the entire Israeli Conce yes, the, that, the whole concept of Israel. That, you know, that was. I don't think it's the latter. That's that's sort of open to interpretation, I guess. the The bit of what yeah. Jones said that's undoubtedly anti-Semitic is when he gets into the question of people who have dual nationality going off to fight for Israel. He says it's against the law and you should be locked up, right? Yeah, but is that is that anti? Yes, yes, it is. Is that is it not possible? Right, and I'm just. I'm, I'm asking the question through ignorance. Is it not possible that he was ignorant of the law and thought it was well, a little okay. bit like going off to fight for a foreign force of any kind, and it was well, you know, first, first of all, criminal offence? Uh, it, it, it's a, it's become such a. I mean, Labour has been dealing with these questions now for many years, so I would have thought it behoves a, a Labour candidate to acquaint themselves with the law in these issues before opening them out. Secondly, again, going back to that. Uh, definition from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is really is the global standard. It is anti-Semitic to accuse Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide to the, than to the interests of their own nations. So he was playing okay. again into an anti-Semitic trope, which is, you know, what are Brits doing going off fighting for Israel? Slam dunk. And yeah. Uh, and I know that, that there's a kind of feeling of, well, you know, this is all very complicated, but actually it's not. And people can go to the IHRA website, and he could have done, and every Labour candidate and councillor should do, and just acquaint themselves with the rules. They're really very, very straightforward. They're a lot more straightforward than the rules governing Islamophobia, I have to say. Um, which is not yeah. to defend Islamophobia, but you know it really isn't. It isn't as difficult as everyone is currently pretending that this is sort of, you know, terribly complicated. You just have to acquaint yourself with the with the distinction between is the Israeli government and the nature of Israel as a as a Jewish homeland. And it is very, you know, if if Labour is serious about driving anti-Semitism out of its ranks, it has to be. Um, very very clear about this now well let me just before we, you go on let me just yeah. let, let me just say that i i for me having read about it and thought about it i with Azza ali the comments to me you use the phrase slam dunk i agree completely i think there's no room for any kind of um explanation beyond anti-semitism with the with the comments made by graham jones and i'm the reason I'm exploring this is because I think it's coming to a bigger question about Labour's reaction. With the comments about Graham Jones, I think there is some context there that he could say, um, I was expressing frustration, I was ignorant of the law, I did actually think it was illegal to go out and fight. You know, He could just say, I just didn't know, and I got it completely wrong, and there was no um, 
motivation of anti-Semitism there. So that's my view, and I recognise that it's different to your view on that. But the question that I think is 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 interesting is this one of of factionalism or the accusation that Labour is still yeah, driven okay. by factionalism. Well, okay, well, this is where we get into the really interesting sort of Labour internal party politics. So the Labour left has alleged double standards, and it said that the delay in taking Ali off, you know, uh, disavowing Ali as a Labour candidate is a reflection of his alleged factional affinity to Keir Starmer because he was a advisor to Brown and to Blair. Um, and you had people like Owen Jones going out and saying, look what happens, you know, the, the Labour right get treated specially, the Labour left don't. I think this is complete nonsense. The, the reason that they delayed, and they shouldn't have delayed, by the way, it was a terrible error, was because the deadline for the ballot papers had passed in Rochdale. And so if they disavowed Ali, there would be no Labour candidate. And the problem with that, and here we really get to the the, the specific, is that Labour fears that it is handing Rochdale to George Galloway, who's standing there. And George Galloway has a sort of uh, a kind of symbolism in in the Labour universe that Nigel Farage has in the Tory universe. You know, he he is famous for uh, beating the sitting Labour MP Una King in Bethnal and Green in 2005 and then more spectacularly winning the 2012 Bradford West by-election with a 36% swing. And so what you've got now is a is a very very unsatisfactory situation where Ali is still on the ballot paper, he could win and sit as an independent. Or, nightmare scenario for Labour, Galloway wins and, it, you know, there there is a kind of neuralgic uh, feeling around Galloway that if he wins, he'll have a, a seat in Parliament, he'll be able to uh, use his very impressive powers of oratory to destabilise Starmer. And, and they are disproportionately sensitive to that so that was the real background this idea of ali as being somehow in the inner starmerite circle is just just nonsense i mean he'd very early on expressed and written written petitions uh you know expressing grave dissatisfaction with starmer's position on the war so it's just not it doesn't hold water this idea that it's a return to factionalism this what this was was a a very bad piece of political management yeah and i think the you know it's clear to me that people who are driving the factionalism are the people like owen jones and who who it suits you know it suits them to have a a very kind of far spectrum position that they can keep hammering he clearly has nothing but contempt for keir starmer I've, i've always i've been suspicious of people like owen jones because i think they're driven by how how close they feel to the centre of power and if the centre of power keeps them distant then they feel resentful and bitter about that. I just feel like there's this sense that everybody is on one end of a spectrum and that's not the case at all. You know, Most people are sitting much more in the middle of these issues and think that they're complicated and nuanced and I certainly think if you extend that out to the general electorate I think well, we'll find out when the Rochdale by-election comes about. But I suspect that the people of Rochdale are much more interested in the fact that the NHS uh, is falling to bits and that the local education system is falling to bits and the queues at food banks than they are um, about the issue of, of Gaza. And I also think it's really condescending when people say, well, you know, 28% of the uh, electorate in Rochdale is Muslim, so you can expect a massive, you know, pro-Palestine hmm vote and, and a rejection of, of this kind of ambivalence that Starmer has been accused of, um, the Muslims are are as affected by the general issues uh, inflicted on this nation as everybody else. And I, I can't, I can't, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe it will be a Gaza by-election, but I hope it's probably an election based more on the troubles of this country than it is on this sort of internecine problems that the Labour Party's got on this Palestine or Israel issue. Well, I think that's true. I also think, though, that the the reason the factionalism charge has been revived 
is because the Labour left always maintained that there wasn't really an anti-Semitism problem, that it was simply yeah. a device used by the Labour right to beat the Labour left and specifically Jeremy Corbyn's leadership with. And they are rolling this out as evidence that, you know, in fact, when someone that they see is not of the left, i.e. Ali, says anti-Semitic things, it takes the leadership a long time to um, disavow him. Um, but in fact, the, the, there's a sinister side to that, which is the Labour left has never reconciled itself to the idea that anti-Semitism is a form of racism. They really haven't. I mean, it, and, and that, that problem remains it remains a part of Labour culture. And, you know, Starmer has gone a very long way to rooting the problem out. He he sacked Rebecca ba Long Bailey as Shadow Education Secretary very early on in his leadership uh, when Corbyn didn't respond in the right way to the EHRC report. He um, stripped the whip of him and has said that Corbyn will, will not stand again as a Labour candidate, which is a big thing to say about your predecessor. So, you know, props yeah. to Starmer for taking it on. But the problem culturally in the Labour Party that a huge number of Labour people do not regard because they see everything in terms of power and powerless, they do not regard anti-Semitism as a form of racism. And that's that will right. that that will persist. And the reason it's interesting and important is because if Starmer is heading for Downing Street and Labour is heading for government, these will continue to be issues. And although I agree with you that I think, you know, right now, most voters are much more you know, concerned with the fact that we've just heard that today that Britain's been in a recession. Inflation is slightly down, but, you know, still prices are very high and the NHS is in great trouble. These are big issues. But um, the Middle East has always been a massive problem for Labour. And I think it has been... Yeah especially so since October the 7th, because Starmer was, you know, Starmer chose to make anti-Semitism, I think rightly, the sort of frame of his imposition of discipline upon the party and the break with the Corbyn era. But obviously, since October the 7th, sensitivities and feelings and emotions and passions around the issue have, have escalated to an extraordinary degree especially in, in the Labour Party, not only in the Labour Party. I mean, let's not forget that yesterday um, the Conservative mayor of Salisbury was expelled from the party for making anti-Semitic remarks. You know, there are divisions within the Conservative government yeah. about where, where to go on this. So it's not, it's not just Labour, um, but it is particularly, you know, marked in Labour. And and this is the, the nub of the problem for Labour, is that they're out of sync with the general population, I think, on this issue. They, they're more polarised than the general population is on this issue. The general population, poll after poll, since October the 7th, has shown, and it's been fairly static, um, is that there's a degree of sympathy with Palestinian people, there's a degree of sympathy with Israeli people, but the great bulk, two-thirds of people find it complicated and nuanced and have sympathy with both parties or none. Yes. And that, that, that's, you know, right. that's, that's a reasonable position to hold. I think it's a logical position to hold, really, as a, a bystander, you know? Well, I suppose, you know, full disclosure, I'm probably more pro-Israel and always have mm. been. But, uh, but I totally accept, I mean, to look at Starmer's specific problem is that his position is unpopular with many in his party. And... So you've got independent candidates now starting to target sitting MPs like uh, West Streeting in Ilford North, Stephen Timms in East Ham, uh, Lynn Brown in the new Stratford seat on the grounds that the Labour Party is being too pro-Israel. So he's got another electoral management problem coming down the line. In November, 56 Labour MPs defied the Labour whip on a ceasefire vote and 10 front benches quit, including Jess Phillips, you know, who's quite a significant figure. Um, in January, Kate Osamar had the MP for Edmonton had the whip suspended following comments about uh, Gaza being included as a genocide on Holocaust Memorial Day, all these sensitivities. So it's, it's not going to go away. And now next week we have the SNP 
calling for an immediate ceasefire. Now, Starmer has said he wants a sustainable ceasefire. They're not the same. And he's got a really, really big political call to make here, which is, does he give MPs a free vote? Does he try and amend the amendment so that it says something more to his liking? What I, th what I think about this conflict generally is that it is turning into the equivalent of the Vietnam War for this generation. It is, it is, you know, I agree with you, Matt, that it is for a lot of people, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that. But I think also it, it, it that was probably true of Vietnam for a lot of people as well. It has uh, extraordinary adhesive quality in that it it brings other issues into its into its sort of immediate precincts, like social justice, like the oddity of hearing people saying re reproductive rights are Palestinian rights or trans rights are Palestinian rights. It's suddenly become the kind of maypole around which a lot of political issues dance and. That's not going to change because clearly the conflict is, is going to go on in, in various forms for quite a lot longer. And, you know, one hopes not, but may well yet escalate into a regional conflict. And it is it is everywhere. You know, you see it yeah. in there was a story this week about a Soho theatre where a comedian had had um, been aggressive towards a Jewish audience member who refused to join in the salutation of the Palestinian flag and the theatres had to ban the, the comedian. And there are just these incidents everywhere which uh, mean that it, 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 it sort of stretches from, you know, the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea to Ivy League campuses yeah. <laughs> to the yeah. bill that, that Biden's been trying to get through Congress. You know, it's just, it's very hard to to, to avoid it. It's It's becoming one of those defining issues which... I always think that, it, that, that things like this are very important in proving that actually politics isn't just about the economy and public services. You know, I'm not I'm not saying everyone in Britain is walking around thinking about this all the time or indeed any of the time. But the actual practice of politics and the fact that people who shape politics often have strong views and always have. This is not yeah. just the social media era means that it, it will have a, a role. For Starmer, there's the problem that there's just been a poll, just one poll, Savanta poll, saying that the lead has been cut to seven points. Now... By seven you know, points, yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it narrows to seven points. It may be that's probably just a, a one-off, and the Savanta said as much, you know, don't read too much into one poll. But we also know, do we not, that Starmer is incredibly sensitive to by-elections. I mean, he nearly resigned after the Hartlepool by-election. After the Uxbridge by-election, which the Tories held on to, he panicked way out of all proportion over the ULEZ uh, emissions scheme in London. And this led to, a, you know, where we are now with him on, you know, taking a, a, you know, a step back on climate change policy. So I think that... He's he's panicking over Rochdale. It's on February the 29th and it, it will trouble him deeply that all this is happening. Yeah. And I think that it again returns to the theme that we've both visited frequently on this podcast about the depth of Starmer. How much depth is there? And is he uh, a man blowing in the wind, you know, the political winds or is he a man who once elected, and let's, for the sake of argument, carry on assuming, although I think it's, you know, perhaps part of the problem that there is a complacency around the assumption of a Labour victory, but let's assume that he gets into power. And again, where is the boldness? Where are the big ideas? Where yes. is the sense that they can defy a Tory fiscal policy that stretches all the way back to George Osborne, you know, and this idea that there's no money, you know, the, as Rachel Reeves said the other day, the credit cards maxed out, you know, they're going to, well, as, as, as I read Yanis Vanifarak is saying, you know, who I'm not a big, massive auto fan of, but he, he did make the point that this analogy between a, na you know, a nation's finances and your personal credit card is completely fallacious because yeah. your personal income has no correlation to what you spend it on but but 
the income of a nation has a direct correlation with how you spend and invest. You know, if you don't invest, then you will not generate more income. And this is now, it, it seems utterly befuddling to me that this is, has become Labour's default position, is that we haven't got the money to do it. And I think they need to make the money. They need, and it, you know, we've seen time and time again where economies can uh, invest through various different fiscal devices but you can find the money and you they need to be bold now and say we're going to spend our way and invest in britain now to create a better britain in 10 or 15 years and what i've seen lately is a, is a, a, an indication that they are more small c conservative than the bloody conservatives right now yes that but but also i think um circling back to to Zagaza, is that if if Starmer does become prime minister, he won't be able to or, or no one in government will be able to talk about Gaza or Ukraine or anywhere as a faraway country of which we know little. You know, he will be the leader of a G7 senior NATO nation at a time of grave geopolitical disorder. He may be dealing with President Trump and he needs to have his internal intellectual ducks in a row before he becomes prime minister, because as nuanced and difficult as these questions are, ministers decide, you know, the, 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 it is in the nature of, of, of being a, a prime minister that you take decisions. And this crisis in the Middle East is not going to go away. And one of the things that I think there is a certain amount of naivety about is of course, it would it would be fantastic if the shooting stopped tomorrow, there was a ceasefire. But that is not the end of the story. And if Starmer does become prime minister, he's going to have to deal with... Uh, I mean, let's say, you know, that there's a, a ceasefire of some duration. That will not solve the problem of Hamas's complete incapacity to be, um, you know, a good faith actor in future talks. And I think there's a there's a sort of especially on the Labour side, there's this view that if there's a ceasefire, we move straight to two two state solution talks. No, no. And I'm not sure that that Starmer has got anywhere along that journey. And unfortunately, you know, yes, you do have to devote a lot of your time as prime minister and and hopefully most of your time to domestic problems. But you, but if you're the, the leader of a, an advanced industrial economy with a major military capacity, you are thrown into these issues daily, and you spend. You know, I remember Blair saying to me once, you know, you spend fifty percent of your day talking to foreign leaders and discussing, you know, intractable geopolitical problems. Is he ready? I mean, that, what what this suggests mm. is that he hasn't thought this side of the. Uh, 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 this hemisphere, as it were, of the prime ministerial brain is uh, is still developing. I think I, what it suggests to me, and again, you know, we're playing cod psychology now, or at least I am, but is that in his deep heart's core, he is risk averse. And I think he's demonstrated it with his response to the changing finances with the £28 billion um, climate pledge. He's demonstrated it with his reaction to this Rochdale crisis, is that he's tried to find a way through now you could easily argue well he showed great courage in in coming out and stamping down on anti-semitism as he did in 2021 yes so i might be completely wrong but i am troubled that the closer he gets to the finishing line he's starting to show where i, I would be looking for expansive courage and ambition he's mm. starting to show signs of conservatism and that that worries me Yes, and I think also that he's got to be willing to upset people in his own party in a way that isn't just um, right. sort of predictable. I mean, you know, Blair was destroyed not by Iraq, people forget this, but by Lebanon. Prime ministers in the end on foreign policy often end up seriously at odds with their parties. Now, I'm not, I'm not yeah. suggesting Starmer has to go all in with Israel, but... He, he will have to take very, very difficult and unpopular decisions either way in this particular crisis, because this crisis is going to be defining. It's going to go on for years. It, this is not yeah. going to be over by December. You know, even if there is a ceasefire, you know, this is going to be uh, something that 
we'll be talking about for, for, for a long time to come. I'm sure you're absolutely 100% right on that. And we are going to thank you for listening so far, dear listeners. We're going to be back in a brief moment and we the discussion will change tempo massively. And we're going to talk about something much more fun. <laughs> much more fun. So, uh, much more see fun. See you in a moment. See you in a moment. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of Jarvis Cocker's stage invasion of Michael Jackson's performance at the Brits. Then on Tuesday, we tell the story of the Spaniard who named Florida. On Wednesday, the birth of instant photography, the Polaroid camera. Thursday was the day Dolly became the world's most famous sheep. And on Friday, the foiled 19th century plot to kill the entire British cabinet. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, I've got a question for you. Do you know, on our fabulous range of merchandise, what is the most popular thing we've sold on the New Europeans shop? I think I know, but you tell me. I'll tell you what it is. It's a bollocks to Brexit passport That's cover. That's I'd imagine. Uh, do you know how many we've sold in the I, last two I years? I'd imagine a fair, fair few. Two and a half thousand. Uh, it's brilliant. I'm, they're terrific. Vegan leather, it's called, which actually does look like leather. It's burgundy. Pleather. Is it pleather? Is it pleather? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, vegan, I don't know. Actually, vegan leather may be more cool than it's More pleather. leathery than, yeah. Yes. Anyway, it's been nowhere near a cow. That's the main thing. No, um, no bovine mutilation was involved. Not at all. It looks passingly like a like an old-fashioned uh, European passport. Oh, it's burgundy, and it's got that gold-embossed crest on it. I love it. Except on the crest it says bollocks to Brexit. Love and it a, it's all very uh, subtle and nice and funny. Anyway, we've sold loads of them. People love them. And guess what? It's going to be our subscription offer for the next few weeks. Happy so days. When new subscribers join the New European for as little as a pound a week, for which you get all of our digital content, all of your brilliant culture newsletters, everything we do online and full archive of newspapers and great features. Or if they spend another pound a week, they get the newspaper, which has a retail price of £4.50. You can get it for an extra pound a week delivered to your door every week for just £1 a week. You'll get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. Fantastic. What could be better? I don't think anything. Imagine standing in the queue to passport control. Imagine it. Ostentatiously waving Just imagine. Bollocks to Brexit passport cover. The sheer cover. sense of national pride. Because you're in that and queue for about an hour and a half. International now. pride and joy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if you want to take up this fantastic offer, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S. Do it now while stocks last. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
So, Matt, big week at the movies. Yeah, and time time for the joy. We had a very serious, yeah. hardcore uh, first half, uh, yeah. and you know had to, had to I think because it's the big subject of the week. But let's talk about something joyous, which is um, the new Bob Marley movie, One Love, Wait. which I saw last night. And um, although I am going to be contrarian again. <laughs> As is my want, because all the crit, all the all the critics have been dumping on it, right? They've been dumping on it, oh, no. so snooty, and you know, oh, it's it's too respectful, right? Well, all I can tell you is this, and imagine the scene: your co-host and employee uh, at a uh, East London cinema last night, dancing and singing in the aisles, right, with the audience, <laughs> along to Amazing. the songs of the great man. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, Are you literally? Were you literally dancing in the aisles? Not in the aisles, but in the seat. But people were in the in aisles the uh, singing along, and dancing to "One Love." It's it's directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green. Kingsley Ben Adair plays Marley. It covers the period seventy six to seventy eight when he made Exodus, you know, which is one of the great records of the twentieth century. And it is respectful, and it does portray him as he led as a legend. But he was a bloody legend, you know. And it doesn't yeah, yeah, gloss over yeah. his infidelities, as some have claimed. So, um, I loved it, and I was completely perplexed by, you know, comparing that with all the kind of doomy. Oh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't critical enough from film writers who I know that if it had been too critical of Marley would have been saying, you know, what an outrage, you know, how dare <laughs> the white supremacists of Hollywood come out. You know, th- 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 this is what makes me hate film critics is is not judging a thing on what it's meant to do. This is a celebration of one of the great. Um, and, and, and also it's what we need. It's what we need right now. And wh- where does this sit in the great pantheon of music biopics then? Well, I mean, this is, I wanted to, sort of get your take on what you yeah. what biopics you think are pop biopics are great and which ones aren't let me kick off with one that it came out and it it's no exaggeration to say that it it helped mold me as a person which was yeah um oliver stone's the doors and uh, uh-huh. i became i became entranced with jim morrison as many sort of teenage boys yeah. do and it sort of does veer you off a certain Source of, you know, it 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 clearly found an affinity with my natural disposition, and I became very moody and sulky and kind of artistic and boho, and went off to Perla shares to sip Jack Daniels at the graveside and all of this stuff. But the interesting thing about that film, if we put Jim Morrison to one side, is I watched the film again recently, and I thought it absolutely sucked. I thought it was terrible. Yes. It, it, it's so, really so, interesting that this is this points to a very important point about the biopic the pop biopic is that you can love the subject and be entranced by the movie and then come back to it and think hang on did i really like that just some undoubted turkeys okay dennis quaid as jerry Lee lewis in great balls of fire i mean it's worth watching for, for the terribleness of it okay um another one which i recommend to you if you want a sort of fun so bad it's good movie is called Elvis and Nixon and this has Elvis <laughs> that's no, brilliant and wait wait it's got El- Elvis Elvis played by Michael Shannon and Nixon this is this is the genius played by Kevin Spacey right and it is just a turkey of of yeah. Olympic standards and the other <laughs> the, the other one I always think is is just unbelievably terrible is a movie that came out four years ago called Stardust, which is about early David Bowie, but has no Bowie yeah. music in it. It was awful. Yeah. Awful. But did you? What did you think? Of, what did you think of the other Bowie film, Moon Age Daydream? Because I'm slightly conflicted on it. Yeah, well, I like that, but I think documentaries are really different. So going back to Bob Marley, the uh, Kim McDonald documentary that came out in I think 2012 is, uh, you know, is if people feel that this movie is too sort of much of a pageant, go back and watch that documentary for, um, you know, a more documentary approach to the subject. Um, (laughs) 
uh, I mean, Moon Age Daydream, I suppose, was an attempt to type, kind of turn, make the medium the message, wasn't it? Which was it's psychedelic. Yeah. It was very sort of um, the style was very, very important to the message. It wasn't just a sort of talking heads movie that you'd expect. In, in terms of one um, film that really nailed it for me in terms of a music biopic, it was uh, Control about Joy Division and Ian Curtis. I was going to say the same. Brilliant. Isn't it? It's an, it's just majestic, isn't it? You know, it is. I I mean, it might be my favourite because yeah, Sam Riley as Ian Curtis, Anton Corbin is a director who had been one, you know, photographed the band during their brief existence. Um, yeah, and I and I think it uh, just it it captures in its sort of black and white severity something very very distinctive and but it but it's also a very good drama yeah and and in terms of um like top two or three biopic films then if we've got control towards the top any any other recommendations well, i've got a couple in I, mind but you go i have a fondness for sid and nancy uh-huh um i know it it's not great on the other members of the band as mr lyden has often made very clear but I think Gary Oldman's depiction of Sid Vicious and Chloe Webb's of Nancy Spongeon is brilliant. So I, I like that. Yeah. And I think it has a sort of a tragic, elegiac feel about it, which is very powerful, Alex Cox movie. So that's one. Yeah. And I, I was, I'm going to broaden the, the genre a little bit, but he was, he was a pop musician of his time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Amadeus. Oh, yeah. Amadeus is a rock and roll movie. It's a great yeah. movie. In, it may yeah. be the greatest, actually. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hulse, Tom Hulse may be the greatest performance of a of a rock star ever. Um, with <laughs> you know, with with all the kind of Freudian um, father fixation stuff thrown in, and and it's it, no, it's a gorgeous film. And of course, the other reason that this is um, kind of something to be thinking about is that there's much sort of big big drum roll going on at the moment for. The release of uh, Back to Black, Sam Taylor Johnson's yeah. um, biopic of Amy Winehouse, starring yeah. uh, Rissa Abela, and um, the, the trailers look good. I don't know whether it'll be. Uh, I mean, Amy Winehouse is um, a subject about which people get terribly prickly, and it, it feels quite recent. Um, and yeah. um, so, so I, I don't, I don't know whether it will be as good as. Some suspect. I hope so. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's on the. It's it. It's following one of the greatest music documentaries, Amy. Exactly. Uh, which won which, an Oscar. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Which is so. It's a tough act to follow. And um, also, I do feel like you know. I mean, God bless her soul, but you know, at least she's dead, and um, people can start to form an historic view of her. Whereas stuff yes. like the Elton John um, biopic that came out, Rocket with, Man. I, I just thought he was up. Rocket Man, that's it. I would put that in the dustbin of history. Honestly, I thought it was absolute shit. I'll tell you one we, we haven't mentioned, which um, has slightly faded from memory, but I thought was absolute knockout, was uh, Straight Outta Compton in 2015 oh, about yeah, MWA. Yeah. That was a... That was a, a, a Paul Giamatti, yeah. A really good film. Um, and, you know, uh, may, another one which is forgotten is... Um, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll about Ian Dury with Andy Serkis playing the great man. And and it's That's sometimes brilliant. these lesser ones. So I I had a and this may be totally unfair, but I had a kind of allergic reaction to Bohemian Rhapsody because I just knew yeah. that it had entirely been made to get Rami Malek and Oscar. Yeah. That's absolutely right. It was it everything around it. There was a kind of caption underneath, you know. Uh, you know, vote now, vote now, vote now. And he got an Oscar and it was a very good in person. Imper it was a perfect impersonation of Freddie Mercury. He couldn't knock the guy. Whereas with One Love, it probably was a technically less remarkable film than Bohemian Rhapsody. But I didn't note when I went to see Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe I went to the wrong performance. I didn't see anyone getting out of their seats and dancing and singing to One no. Love and redemp Redemption Song and you know, yeah. Three Little Birds, you know. You haven't seen, you know, until you've seen me do Three Little Birds, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to throw one more in, um, which I don't even know if it fits the category pro pro 
But I think of all the films we've mentioned, it's the one that if I had to, if I had to watch again tonight, I would watch this one. And it's 24, 24, seven, what was it? 20, 24, 24 party, party people. people. 24, 24 hour, hour party, party people. people. With Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson. Absolutely brilliantly funny as Tony Wilson. And of course, the, a big Joy Division connection with that one as well. But Tony yeah, Wilson, and I ha- think, the more I think about him, what a remarkable guy he was. You know, he was like, he was, when I was growing up in Liverpool, he was the BBC Northwest TV guy. Granada. Go out and do, yeah, Granada. That's right, Granada. Sorry, not BBC. And he'd go out and do Vox Pops in the streets of Manchester yeah. and stuff like that. And he was, he was living this bipolar life where he was also the impresario behind factory records you know and the unbelievable and unbelievable all, all, incredible guy incredible guy Do you, yeah. let me ask you a really <laughs> a really i mean i i I'll, I'll i'll put my hands up to start with to make it easier um do you <laughs> think our generation matt are hopelessly in love with that era of joy division Factory records. Yeah, I am. I know I am. We we are in that that. It's like, I remember that scene about um in uh in Mad Men when Don Draper's doing his presentation about nostalgia and he and he explains what nostalgia. You know, it's the pain of memory. You know, the pain of never being able to go back. And and I feel it deeply about the the late seventies and the early eighties. You know, the pain yeah. of not being able to go back because it was such a joyful time even though you were surrounded by you know awful social deprivation and economic trash it was all before everything started turning rosy again you know but there was something beautiful about it i think that's right and i think that that it's interesting bernard sumner says about joy division that um there was because there was so little beauty around them they found it themselves and he said we didn't really know that at the time um yeah but that's what they were doing and and the music stands yeah. up, at least I think so. Oh, a hundred percent. I really do. A hundred percent. Well, that's a beautiful note, a beautiful note upon which to end this week's episode. Go see, if you're feeling depressed by politics, yeah. go and see this movie. It'll really cheer you up. <laughs> Brilliant. So please, as ever, get in your questions and any feedback you've got to two mats at tnepublishing.com. That's the number two. M-A-T-T-S at T-N-E-Publishing.com. Or if you listen on Spotify, you can just message us there very simply. And that's what Andy Smith did. And he said, Hi, Matt. Given the dwindling sales number for daily print newspapers, why is it that politicians seemingly continue to be fearful or scornful of headlines and allow that fear to influence policy? That, Andy Smith, is a fantastic question. And I think it's one we should address on our Q and A on Q and A, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I we'll, do. We'll, Andy and and everybody else, join us on Sunday morning for a Q and A. We'll address that at the top of the show. Um, we're back on Sunday, as we've just said. Remember our fantastic subscription offer. If you like what you hear on the podcast, you will love the New European newspaper. So go to the New European forward slash two mats. There's a link in the show notes, and you'll get a fantastic deal on a subscription. Just tell them I sent you. Thank you, as ever, to producer Ollie Peart at Rethink Audio, assisted this week by the brilliant Matt Hill. And until next week... It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide trætte af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.